Progressive Rugby League. John O'Duncan. You know, I've never turned 50 before, but it is on my bucket list of ages to experience, for sure and certain. I get the sense, though, that some approaching that milestone would appreciate a couple of years' grace before ticking over to the Big 5-0. Well, over the New South Wales Labor Day long weekend at the start of October, the New South Wales Aboriginal Rugby League knockout, better known as the New South Wales Koori knockout, celebrated a 50th edition that was indeed three years in the waiting. But unlike my imaginary, balding, expanding, regret-filled, middle-aged man-child character, there's no way the Koori knockout would have wanted to delay their half-century. As we know, though, the world's predictably unpredictable. And in the end, this grand sporting and cultural institution got there, and got there in fine fettle. I mean, who'd have thought back in 1971, when six blokes, Bob Smith, Bob Morgan, Bill Kennedy, Danny Rose, Victor Wright and George Jackson, laid the foundation for the first Koori knockout to be held in the Sydney suburb of St Peter's, that it would not only still be going in 2022, but that it would be flourishing to such an extent that some of the best players in rugby league full stop clamour to be involved. But it's not only the star power that makes this event impressive. Have a listen to some of these numbers. Seven separate competitions, women's, men's, five junior, a total of 4,500 players representing up to 40 First Nations communities across New South Wales, some 30,000 participants and attendees across the four-day festival. That's just incredible. Early last year, I had the pleasure of interviewing Professor Heidi Norman about the First Nations Rugby League experience in New South Wales, and we delved a little into the Sydney of the 60s and 70s and the social conditions that contributed to the knockout's formation. Today we're going to take that a little further and discuss how the Koori knockout has evolved over 50 editions, on the field, off the field, and in the eyes of the people, First Nations and otherwise, of this here state. And I honestly can't think of anyone better to help us out than Brad Cook, who has just called his 14th Koori knockout for SBS and NITV. A proud, bidgical man, Brad knows the Koori knockout and its storied history better than most. Not only the great tries and matches and trophy winners, but all the stories behind them that make this such an important cultural mainstay for the Aboriginal people of New South Wales. Brad has also penned a lovely article for the State Library of New South Wales website to accompany a new exhibition at that beautiful building called Koori Knockout 50 Years. So it's wonderful to have Brad Cook along to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Brad, hello and welcome. Jono, thank you and uh, really appreciate that amazing introduction for the 50th knockout because it certainly it certainly deserves that so big thank you to you thanks very much brad and really excited to have you along for a chat let's start with the knockout that was just held on the south coast of new south wales shall we uh seven competitions held over four days as i mentioned the dungadi connections defeating newcastle yowies in the women's comp the newcastle all blacks beating the walgett aboriginal connection in the men's and wins for cabbage tree island in the under 17 girls the Waterloo Storm in the under-15 girls, La Perouse in the under-15 boys, and the Blacktown Red Belly Warriors in the under-13 and under-17 boys. All right, I've always wanted to be an around-the-grounds guy, so that's my audition tape. Brad, keen on your reflections on the 2022 knockout. Was it a success? How was it received by those in attendance? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's probably going to be split into two ways. I think the football was absolutely enormous. Some of the best footy we probably would have seen for a while in the fitting of the 50th event. Uh, unfortunately, it's going to be remembered for the wettest knockout in history. Yeah. The conditions down there, 
the South Nowra Rugby Park, where it was held, along with the Bombardieri Sporting Complex, where I did all of my commentary. The rain was literally ridiculous. It was monsoon, or from, say, Tuesday afternoon mm. to about, I'd say, Saturday morning, and, and getting into Saturday afternoon, deep into Saturday afternoon. So to have two days completely awash of rain, it really affected the, the quality of the pitches at, yeah. at one of the locations. And it greatly affected the experience for visitors and you know, participants that are, are you know around the community are turning up just to watch the games mm. because they all it just turned into a mud pile on the outside of the ground. So yeah. the experience is it's sort of split fifty fifty. Remembered for some of the great footy, yeah. but also remembered for the, the horrible conditions that everybody had to endure. Yeah, fair enough. Now, Brad. A lot of listeners would know about the knockout, but many wouldn't be across the intricacies, particularly those outside New South Wales and Australia. I'm thinking in particular about how teams are put together. It's it's not always about geography. Sometimes memorial teams are, are formed to commemorate the passing of a loved one, for example. And then you've got the different philosophies about how to approach the knockout on the field. The, the men's final was a, a good example. The, the Newcastle All Blacks, the eventual winners, seem to be a, a genuinely local side, I think, mostly playing in the, the Newcastle comp. Uh, and they were against the Walgett Aboriginal Connection who went down the, the big recruit path, bringing in outsiders, you know, like Latrell, Mitchell, uh, Ben Barber and Joel Thompson. So two very different approaches meeting in the final. Is that a constant source of discussion among knockout devotees about whether one pr- approach is better or worse in terms of results or the knockout itself? Yeah, it's always a, a talking point, but I think I'll start with uh, the Walgett Aboriginal Connection first because I think that's probably what's been on most people's thoughts or minds since the weekend. And mm-hmm. what you got to understand is connection is is a different word in Aboriginal community than it might be throughout Main Street community. Connection for us is a personal, enduring connection where there's been a relationship mm-hmm. between either members of or an Aboriginal person and members of those particular communities or in this case the Walgett Aboriginal Connection team. Yep. They're a famous club historically, like mm-hmm. uh, under a different name of um, BAC or Aboriginal Connection Walgett, they won three knockouts in a row from 88 through to 1990 mm-hmm. and in that team was George Rose Senior and mm-hmm. most people will remember the George Rose being you know, a member of the Manly 2011 Premiership winning team mm-hmm. but between George and his brothers Matt and Trent they are the, the strength of that community in bringing teams together. But they also they are heavily involved in other sports management, whether it be through rugby league players who play in first grade, the no-limit boxing promotions that happen, mm-hmm. they're run by George and Matt and Trent. So they're, they're actually quite strong guardians in Aboriginal community and where you know, people think of Walgett as a community, a lot of people don't even know where it is. Right? It's in mm-hmm. north and western New South Wales. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got quite a small population. Not a lot of players living and staying in a community of the highest quality football. Yep. So it's very difficult for everyone to say, well, let's just put a team in at Walgett who all come out of the community of Walgett. It's not going to happen. Yep. You know, the, the Walgett family moved to into Bathurst when they were younger, lived around that community growing up. And then, you know, what went on, Trent played a lot of great lower football as well for like Wentworthville and under Parramatta. Mm-hmm. Georgie obviously played first grade. And Matt, Matt is, you know, couldn't be regarded as the best of the three when it comes to quality of football, and certainly at the knockout, he is. Mm-hmm. So it's harder for them to pull together a team. So they want to represent Walgett, so they put together the best team that they can get to play for them. And there is a relationship between players like Ben Barber, Latrell Mitchell, Joel Thompson, who also played for the side, Ben Jones, another ex-first grade player who played for them, mm-hmm. is that they, they've played a role in 
helping them in their lives outside of football. Mm-hmm. So when you look at connection, that's the connection that they've formed with those players. And, you know, Latrell's been through plenty, mate. You know, in the last few years, you know, since leaving the Roosters, the kids cop nothing but the crap yep. for people for literally no reason. Mm. You know, they get disappointed that, you know, he's not performing at the greatest of his abilities week in, week out. I mean, who can do that? Mm. And at the same time, he's had a lot of injury issues. You know, he's missed out on finals through suspensions. He's copped a lot of flack. But, you know, everyone forgets the fact that if it wasn't him in that Roosters grand final that year and the break down the left-hand side, the Roosters don't win the grand final. Mm. So that's that's that connection side I'm talking about through why, how Wilder put that side together. Do a lot of people agree with it or appreciate it? No, because they don't have that pulling power, I guess, to someone like that Rose family do to pull together that side. Yeah. Uh, I still I still support them greatly in what they do. You know, a lot of questions were around why Latrell didn't play for Tari in his local community. Mm-hmm. But him and his father and his family are, are all good with that. Yep. You know? And that was that what I talked about, that connection for him with that people who looked after him. He wanted to play with them and to say thank you for that care. Mm-hmm. And let, let me tell you, if it wasn't for him playing on that grand final on that day, mm. all of it, half of New South Wales wouldn't be talking about the career knockout. Mm. You know, it would just be another year. Yeah, it's the 50th, but for most non-Indigenous people who aren't really interested in it or, or brush it off as rubbish football because they've never properly watched it, yeah. they're the sort of people who wouldn't be watching the knockout this year if it wasn't for the fact that Latrell played in the grand final. Absolutely, and thanks for explaining that, Brad. And yeah, I mean, you've got to remember as well, Latrell literally a few days before was playing the NRL semi-final against Penrith. Uh, Souths get knocked out. And a couple of days after the knockout as well, he's, he's flying to the UK for, for the World Cup. So it's a pretty big effort to to sort of get down and, and get amongst the, the tournament. And it's, it's a gruelling tournament too. Like they're playing four or five games, aren't they, including an 80-minute final. So, uh, yeah, you can't you can't fault the commitment. 100%. And, and, you know, like people are even giving him flack over the course after it, saying, you know, you won't be seeing him in the grand final. It's like, as you just said, You've got a well-drilled community team who do play a lot of football together in the Newcastle All Blacks. Yeah. Now they won it four years ago. They hosted the last knockout that was held. That's how. Mm. That's how recently they won their last knockout. Yeah. You know they only lost the the one they hosted, and they're well drilled. They know ins and outs. They know how to prevent the ball from getting out to Latrell. So yeah. they they were able to to hold a lot of that footy. And remember, they played over wet conditions over a long period of time. Yeah. What people didn't see in a lot of the coverage was on the outside fields where Latrell was playing his other matches. Mm. Is he was killing it? Yeah. <laughs> he was you know, he was dominating and you know playing the sort of footy and speed and skill that he has. He was he was winning those games to yeah. get them through into those um, the games on television. And as you meant, it is brutal. I mean, the, the Sunday afternoon game that they played, which would have been their fourth game against Burke, mm. many people put down as probably the game of the tournament based yeah, on its right. physicality. Yeah. Uh, guys were sent off through for head eye tackles. <laughs> Um, one of the players knocked out for Walgett is actually a South Sydney reserve grader in Tyson Hodge. Right. And that was a big, tough game. And then the next day they played Castlereagh All Blacks in the semi-final on the Monday, which would have been against Jesse Ramey and at right centre had Jesse not hurt his ankle on the previous day. So yeah. Castlereagh went into the game with, you know, Braden Burns and a lot of great good players like, you know, Nangara Barker and those sort of guys but didn't quite pull it off against Walgett. I went to bed Sunday night thinking, tomorrow morning I'm going to call... Latrell Mitchell against Jesse Rain. Like it was <laughs> yeah. it was exciting, but the fact that it didn't eventually, I went down and saw Jesse before, he wasn't stripped, and he just looked at me and his face was yeah. he was so upset. 
that he couldn't play. He mm. was absolutely devastated mm. that he couldn't play. And, you know, it was difficult for him to even stand and watch that game. That's how, how much it meant to him yeah. to play for the community. Yeah, just makes the whole knockout just that bit more interesting as well, like we're having the different philosophies, different approaches to the tournament. Uh, yeah, you've got those local teams who get together a couple of months out and train for, you know, to make it all the way through and play knockout football. And then you get the others who, who have different philosophies and want to get big names in for, for the good of the tournament as well as their own team as well. So I think it just adds to the, the tapestry of, of the tournament. Yeah. So it's, it's good for me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what, what people don't realise is that people don't all live in the community that they're exactly, from. Exactly, yeah. Right? I'm from La Perouse and you know, all of our players don't live and play in La Perouse all throughout the year. Mm. Some... You know, some come back specifically to play in the knockout. Uh, and there are, you know, unfortunately some players from love that, that don't play in the knockout. We'd love to see them play in the knockout. Mm. Players like, you know, Alex Johnson has never played in the knockout. He played his junior football with La Perouse. Mm. Love to see him come back and play at KO, you know, when he's probably close to retirement. For a lot of players, there's a, there's a real physical menace that they could get injured and mm. not be able to play. Like, and, and I'll tell you without giving the names away, there are NRL coaches who forbid their players from playing in this tournament. Yeah, it's not surprising. And that stuff's got to stop, mate. You yeah. know, like, this is a safe space for Aboriginal players to be themselves, be around mob, uh, feel great, not just run the water for them or, or be happy to be on the bench as they play. They actually want to play. Yeah. I feel like they're letting their community down when they don't play. So for coaches out there, I would say, yes, I know you want to worry about your salary cap and your roster and you know players to get hurt, but, you know, this is just like, imagine in another trial. Like you're still going to be at the risk of getting hurt in a trial. Yeah. Or they would be at risk of hurt getting in the World Cup this year. Yeah. This, the Korean knockout is no different. And, you know, that's that's why we would love for those players to be able to play. But to touch on Newcastle All Blacks, mm. they definitely deserved their win. They were tough. They played smart. They really turned up the play and they got their... You know, some of the new recruits, you know, really worked out well for them and they also picked up some players from their local rival in Newcastle, Yowies. Okay. Adrian Davis and Piper, that played lock and, you know, they were, they were real goers. Uh, sorry, not Piper, Brad Russell. He was off the bench. Uh, Piper's been a major stadium for a while. All hard-working players. And in fact, that recruit, Adrian Davis, picked up player of the tournament. So he was a oh. handy uh, addition to their squad. Yeah. Now... Brad, I mentioned during the intro that you just called your 14th Koori knockout for SBS and NITV, but I know you've, you've been ensconced in the competition for a lot longer. Can you take us through some of your personal history with the knockout? <laughs> Look, yeah, I mean, I'm a Koori from La Perouse, so, you know, if you, if you don't play footy, yeah. or, or, you know, all we had at, all we had at La Perouse was playing footy or swimming at the beach and, you know, diving and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. you know, I was lucky enough to be raised in a rugby league family and got a chance to play. You know, I've got my relations with people like Eric Sims and Kevin Longbottom, you know, right. from, from my family. You know, young Blake Taps, my little cousin, and he's playing with Bunnies at the moment. Yeah. So, footy's in our blood out of And I, I first played in an under-19 exhibition game uh, at Henson Park. Uh, La Perouse won the 91 knockout. Oh, yeah. uh, which was held at Guildford, and then, and which meant they won the right to host it the next year. I hosted at Henson Park and uh, you know some of our other locations like Redfern Oval and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And our game was played was an exhibition back then. They had an under 19s game where the winner of the knockout would play against uh, the host winner of the knockout would play against the reigning under 19s team. Oh, right. And then winning that exhibition game since it was first held, mm-hmm. and that team was Maury Boomerangs, yeah. who are without a doubt one of the, the strongest cultural community team we have in New South Wales. 
They played in the first knockout in 71, which Larpur has won, mm-hmm. uh, and they've been in the 50 of them. You know, there's only about four teams that have been in the 50 knockout. Yeah. So, you know, it's, a, it's been a, an amazing thing. And, and I was lucky enough to play in that and captain the under-19s. And as you say, getting other players to come and join in because it was an exhibition game. Mm. Uh, they were, Larpur recruited some other young ones to come and play with us. And the recruits were pretty good, yeah. <laughs> if I say so. You know, we had the likes of Anthony Mundine, Chris oh, yeah. Patton, <laughs> Robbie John Simpson, Matt Mitchell, Latrell's dad was in that side. Yeah, right. You know, we, we had a talented list of footballers. Was, and look, there's a young kid that know, would know about who played in that side, Dean Sadler. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure he's a relative of young Zach Sadler that played with Walgut over the weekend okay. in that grand final. Yeah. So, you know, as I say, there's connections everywhere, but we were lucky enough to be Maury that day and, you know, I get to hold off the big, the big shield for the under-19s. And nice. Mate, for me, that was a moment where I felt that as an Aboriginal man, I'm playing in a knockout for the first time, mm. I'm getting a chance to, to play big day, and I, that moment, that changed my life. Yeah. I, I was always passionate about rugby league, but that was the day I realised I had to be involved in this event, you know, forever. Yeah, right. Well, let's dig into that a bit more. I think, you know, as you kind of allude to, we can all see some of the immediate benefits of the knockout. You know, a, there's a kind of nourishment that comes from the gathering of community as well as the, the showcasing of emerging talent. But, you know, what kind of social dividend does the knockout produce? You know, just not only for the communities from all over the lands that, that get involved, but also the individuals who participate. What difference does it make? Yeah, especially for the teams that go well in a knockout. Look, we always say that the teams that are going well in the knockout, their communities are going really well. Mm. But there's a strong thing driving the community. It's healthy and that actually does roll out onto the footy field. So mm. I think that's the first insight I'll have in regards to when there's a lot of good stuff going on in the field you know that there's a lot of good things happening off the field so I think that's one thing that I'd be really point out um, people get healthy in the lead up to the knockout like no one wants to turn up unfit yeah. and be a burden on their team or their communities so but people are turning up healthier people are drinking less people are eating healthier they're you know what I mean like there's a yeah. real genuine effort to make sure that people are fit and healthy and that obviously plays into the hands of healthier families and healthier communities. So if you're looking at social impact, that is absolutely the first and foremost. What we've got to realise is these are community events. So when you know, service providers and, and other organisations and businesses realise that we're about to have thirty to 40,000 potentially Aboriginal community members from New South Wales at one place at one time, mm. we need to be there. We need to sponsor the event. We need to be able to give out our information. We need to be able to hook up with our clients, yep. but also get new clients. Service providers really rally to that event and then start providing better services to people in community. And okay. if it's not coming together for that particular event, then you know they're going to struggle to actually access those people back in their own communities. You know, one community at a time or you know individual at a time. But they're at the knockout. They've got them. They've yeah. got them there right in front of them. So when I talk about social investment. It, impact it's not just about the player's health mm-hmm. but it's also about access to information and services which they may not be able to get just stuck in their own communities yeah yeah there's a great quote actually brad from a 2019 joe gorman article that i think uh, is relevant here joe gorman the author of heartland how rugby league explains queensland and the quote is from bob morgan one of the knockout founders and he says it wasn't just about the football we were all young men caught up in the brilliance of what was happening in Redfern in the 70s. 
knockout was a manifestation of that expression of self-determination. We wanted to take control of our own destiny, to put together an event to show the world what we were capable of, not only on the sporting field, but also off it. And we think the knockout has proven that point. Now, Brad, in terms of the knockout's place in the wider society and culture, how have you seen the knockout evolve over your experience? You note in your article, and there's a quote from Heidi Norman that's displayed in the exhibition, that organisers of the competition have often faced hostility and race-based opposition and fear-mongering about crime and all that kind of thing. Is that still an issue today, or have we made progress there? Look, I think we're making progress. You know, firstly, you know, Bob Morgan, a founder, and quoted in that article by Joe, what a legend, Uncle Bobby is, and doing great things for our community. Mm. Heidi, you know, she's been at the forefront of telling the history and the story of the, of the event, so mm. definitely uh, capturing two great people there in, in, in what you bring to the podcast. It, it has evolved immensely over time. Mm. Like, you know, to, to quote at the beginning, there were seven teams that played in that first knockout. What people don't realise, who's now seeing the fruits of the growth of NRLW and the mm. women's game of rugby league, Aboriginal women drove the development of rugby league and really had these competitions going for many, many years before mm. the NRLW and, and more grassroots rugby league kicked off for, for young women. That's been played for as long as I can remember at the KO Women's Rugby League. Mm-hmm. So that development of a stronger women's competition has been great. You know, where they had lesser teams, women were sort of playing for only a handful, maybe six or eight teams. Now they're actually going back out in the communities and playing more for wider communities mm. and playing for their own communities. So women who've moved into Redfern, say, for work or to play, yes, yeah, generally for a job or a family, are now going back to play. That's why you saw a successful Dungutty Connections team mm-hmm. get up over a Newcastle-based team. I mean, yeah, Newcastle will be having nightmares about the Kempsey mob that Dungutty Connections because they also knocked them out of the men's competition as well, which was yeah. the biggest upset of the entire tournament. And, and the development of younger people knockouts. You mentioned who won all those competitions, the 13s. My little twin nephews, Kingston and Cruz, played in the under-13s for La Perouse in that grand final, and they were coached by my little brother, Clint Cook. Yeah, right. um, they were destroyed, yeah. respectfully to my boys, by big, strong young men from out of Blacktown. Mm. These kids were huge. Mm. So whatever they're feeding them out west <laughs> is working. Blacktown played in the grand final for 13s, 15s, and 17s competitions, right? Mm. So for me, my back there this year is we saw an NRL grand final with Penrith and Parramatta mm. that didn't have a single Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander player in it. Yeah. For the first time in 42 years of a senior level grand final of NRL, ARL, and also New South Wales Rugby League mm. since 1980, when Bulldogs and Roosters never had any representation, this is the first grand final. That's to see amazing. those kids dominating for Blacktown at Western New Sydney and not have representation, and some of the Western Sydney teams really played well at this knockout, mm. there needs to be more work done to develop those kids to get to the NRL. For me, there's a problem out there at West for them not to have representation at the top level. I know Penrith had a couple of lower graders, Chris Smith, who was from the NT, and Jermaine Hopgood, mm-hmm. but they need to do more. And Parramatta didn't have a single Indigenous player on their list. Is that so, right? Yeah. The large, large population of Aboriginal people in Australia is Western Sydney. It's Western Sydney, that's right, yeah. So where, where's the development of those players? And the issue we're facing in Aboriginal community is that they're going up against bigger, stronger Polynesian boys out there in Western Sydney who are fit and ready to go. Mm. They're strong, they're able to play at that strong level, but our boys are developing later mm. in life in their physical size. So then I really got to look at that representation because where we're at 13%, representation of, you know, five, ten years ago, it's 
it's actually depleting at the top level down more like to nine or ten. Oh, okay. So I don't understand why that's happening. Yeah. But those younger age groups, they're now providing the opportunity for those kids, 13 through 17, boys and girls, to be playing on television. And mm. for the first time of the year, you want to talk development, our producer at NITV, Ben Smith, was able to get Monday played on Fox League. Yeah, I noticed that. What a development. You know, yeah. all those players have now been able to play on the TV channel that plays their rugby league at the top level, men's and women's games, and Zoom World Cup. They were on that same channel. So yeah. it was a highlight for them. I've got to be honest with you, it was a highlight for me. Yeah. They had to be able to call footy on Fox League. I've had three years at ABC Grandstand, but that was a highlight for me. Yeah, well, I want to talk a bit more about your personal experience in the commentary. You know, I'm curious to know what it's like to commentate on an event that, that means so much to you. <laughs> I've called my community losing two men's grand finals, and that was the <laughs> hardest thing I've ever done in my life. There's nothing harder than seeing your own cousins and relatives out on the field playing the competition that you love more than anything and having to be unbiased and getting excited about the fact that in both grand finals, yeah. they led by four, uh, one, one game was 14 points against Narwin in 2008 mm. and the other grand final led Newcastle All Blacks 18-0 and got run down and beaten. So I had to maintain my excitement for the opposition, <laughs> <laughs> which which was hard, but, you know, that was uh, 2008 was my first grand final, so yeah. I was able to get excited about it. Uh, in 2018, Newcastle All Blacks had lost the previous three grand finals. Right. So I had to be excited for those guys, yeah. you know. They'd earned every right to be there and come from behind. You know, Will Smith scored the tying try and Scotty Briggs kicked the third goal to win it for them in the 79th minute. So had to be excited for them. You know, the hardest part of calling a knockout is you're getting a team list sometimes half an hour before the game. Yeah. You've got 50 names, 25 on each side, and you've got to do your best to try and memorise names. You've got to really try and find out a little bit about the history, the people, the mm-hmm. stories. And then when you go up there in the commentary box, you've, just, you've got to nail it in 40 minutes, 20 minutes a half in those yeah. rounds one through four games. Over the course of the knockout, you start to call teams, you know, twice, then into three times. Mm-hmm. Then by the time you get to the grand final, I've thrown the notes away and I'm just calling off memory and numbers and, you know, yeah. I've got the story told. But yeah. there are also players that I've been calling there for 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> the same guys have been... In and, in and about the event for those 15 years, I, I've called them. So That's brilliant. When I go down to do homework, they're giving me what I want before I even ask them the question. Yeah. And I guess also, Brad, people might not know this, especially overseas listeners, but the location of the, the knockouts changing every year. So your perspective from the commentary box probably differs. The quality of your view probably differs as well. Some years you, you probably don't get such a great view. Some, some years is better than the others. So that's a, a great tradition, but I'm guessing it means that the knockout experience can be quite different from year to year, not only for yourself, but for all the, the different regions who are embracing it as well. <laughs> I, I could write a book about each location, though. I swear yeah. to God. Um, you know, some knockouts... There's a beautiful big grandstand to call from, like a Dubbo, where you've got a little box that's there where coaches would normally sit or timekeepers would sit. You get there and they put an air conditioner on, and it's complete bliss and comfort. Yeah. You know, some years it's you know some years it's thirty degrees depending <laughs> on where you're based. You know, yeah. at the top of the state. This year it was freezing and wet and raining for most of the time, and then come Sunday afternoon into Monday it was boiling hot and dry. Uh, funny story: the great Mark Eller rugby union legend mm-hmm. is part of the management team at 
uh, SBS and ITV in sport. Okay. And one year when we were calling in Bathurst in 2011, it was practically snowing in Bathurst, I'll tell you. <laughs> it was just it's a week out from the Bathurst 1000. Yeah. We're there preparing. I put on these sort of ski pants, thinking that'll keep me warm. <laughs> I climbed the uh, scaffold to get into the commentary area and completely ripped the pants from, <laughs> from front to back. <laughs> right? And it's zero degrees. Like, I'm freezing. Yeah. So I'm screaming over the back to Mark Eller, of all people. <laughs> Gotta go back to the hotel after this, Mark. I need a new pair of pants. <laughs> and they, they literally throw me a blanket to try and keep me warm for the, for the first two games. <laughs> so the conditions, you're right. Like, we, we, this year we called from a scaffold tower, which we normally have at most knockouts. But for the first time in a long time, they put us on the eastern side. Oh, because yeah. the view would have been so much better staring back at the hill where all the marquees were and where all the fans were. Oh, of course. Had you have done it the other way, we would have been staring at field two with literally nothing on the other side. <laughs> yeah. So as a spectacle, you know, the possibility of going on Fox League, how good would that have looked to everybody? Like, <laughs> yeah. why is everyone getting so excited about an event which has nobody at? <laughs> so for Sunday and Monday calling footy, we were staring directly into the sun at times. Oh, right, yeah. Not being able to see monitors. So for a lot of people not realising, you know, we are, we got, you know, and as I said, I'm very privileged to be in a position to call footy, but there's some conditions you're in and, and some viewpoints you have which you just sort of shake your head and think, <laughs> this isn't how it's supposed to be done, but we have to get it done so that everyone can uh, enjoy the coverage. I want to see that book, Brad. I want to read that book. <laughs> just um... you know, There's too many truths, so I wouldn't dare write it. <laughs> Fair enough. Just while we're on commentary, just a bit of a, a sidetrack. Anyone who's heard you commentate at the knockout or elsewhere, as you mentioned on, on ABC Grandstand, would know that you're an outstanding commentator. Can you give us a peek behind the curtain, read the commentary stuff? You know, where are you at with it? How hard is it to get a gig as a rugby league commentator? There are obviously not many jobs out there. Do you just go on Seek and type in rugby league commentary or do you kind of have to know someone and kind of need a bit of luck with the timing and all that sort of thing? Firstly, mate, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's uh, true. I'm proud of the work that I've done so far. I, I do think I'm fairly good at it without getting ahead, big head of myself. But the reality is you've got to be willing to do some down and dirty stuff to get a crack yeah, really. uh, in some areas. Like, and, Unless you're knowing someone that's going to put you know put their head up and say, let's give him a crack, Yeah, it's not going to happen. And, mate, I'm, you mentioned the 50 knockout. I'm 50 next year and I don't have time to muck around. Yeah. I really don't, you yeah. know. Thing is, I'm not a disrespectful person. I'm not a big-headed person. Every location I've been into, I try to befriend everybody. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be anyone's competition, you know. And yeah. the reality is, man, I just soon as soon as there was an opportunity in, uh, I was calling the footy on Monday afternoon. You know, I came mm-hmm. in just after the David Morrow and Warren Ryan episode, right? When they, oh, they, yeah. they wanted an Aboriginal caller to come in and and give a different perspective on the game, and mm-hmm. I gave that. I was mm-hmm. the first person to acknowledge country mm. at the beginning of games. And I'll tell you, from some of my co-commentators, I got some seriously weird looks. Yeah, really. And questioning looks as to why I was acknowledging country at a game. Wow. Now it's on the bottom of every screen, yeah, uh, which exactly. country the game's being played at on commercial and, you know, pay television. So, for me, I was doing that back in 2014. And mm. I don't think the game was ready for that sort of progressiveness, which, mm. you know, based on the title of your podcast, you are. And that's, that's what it was ultimately about. So I wasn't trying to be rude or mean, I was just bringing something new to the coverage. Mm. And so I don't know whether that affected people in a negative way, that okay. I was trying to do that and speak more about the cultural stories and more about people and, you know, the pronunciations of names, mm. you know, I had to see through people calling him Sam Tagatisi for all those years. Yeah. This guy's name's Tangata Ese, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, 
no one was, I was pronouncing his name like that and getting side looks. Yeah. And I'm like, if, when I call knockouts, I go down to those sidelines and I say to every single player, how do you want your name said? Mm. You know? Your mum's listening, your, your families are listening. Yep. What do you want me to call you? Give me the pronunciation and I'll say it exactly that way. Mm. And now we're getting like more and more people in the, in the rugby league area, and especially people from Polynesian backgrounds, yeah. They're getting their name said the right way, and people people are questioning them. Oh, why didn't they say something earlier? Because mm. it's still an unsafe space for a lot of our players, a lot of Aboriginal players, a lot of Polynesian players. It's an unsafe place. Yeah. And for a simple thing like the pronunciation of a name, because when some guys call the footy, they've got to enunciate every single syllable. Mm. Mm. You know? it's, and, and that doesn't always equate to culturally appropriate pronunciation or yeah. commentary. Yeah. So where I'm at is. I highly doubt I'll be getting a top-level gig anywhere soon because I'm not the sort of person who'll bang on doors and beg and plead for jobs. Yeah, okay. And reality is I'd love to call top-level footy. I don't understand why I've never been asked to call the Indigenous and NRL All-Stars game for yeah. Commercial League or Fox League or any of those people. Yeah. I've been, I really love the work of young Jake Duke, Romeroy kid from Maury. You know, I watched his progression as a very young kid all the way up now and he is nailing He's killing it. When I see him, yeah. my, my pride goes through the roof watching him dominate Fox League now. Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. But he's not a ball-by-ball ball commentator. There are no Indigenous ball-by-ball ball commentators in any sport mm. at the top level anywhere in Australia. I was in at the ABC. Yeah. And they let me go as easy as I because when Monday Night Football disappeared, that was their excuse to get rid of me. Yeah, right. So yep. for me, is you know, it, it's, I'll, I'll be honest, it's a sore point. Yep. I'm really grateful I've got the career knockout to call each year, mm-hmm. but I'd, I'd love to be doing more. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about what you're describing there and what is pretty normal today in 2022. You would have been seen as maybe difficult to some people in 2014, I guess. Is, isn't it funny <laughs> as you, like, a, I guess a bit of a trailblazer in a way and on a lot of those things may have been seen as, as a bit like oh who's this guy's a bit difficult it's a bit annoying i guess but nowadays it's kind of become you know par for the course so you know you should have oh, pride I'm, in I'm that really i'm happy to know it's grown that way yeah like you know I, I did call when the first graders weren't playing in the indigenous all-stars game i had a like they called a team called the goannas oh yeah and they played against the new zealand maori at the mm. time and uh i called the game at redstone oval with cody walker and uh, an amazing young woman in the game, I think she's at the Sharks at the moment, Jessica McCartney, mm-hmm. and she's a, a Kiwi. And, and I sat with her and I said, look, anything I get wrong, you've really got to tap me on the shoulder and give me the correct pronunciation. So we're working through, you know, provinces they were from, with their, their whanau, their family, all the connections that they had. Mm. And I got one of the ladies' names wrong, and it was, I pronounced the more of an H sound than an R sound, a rolling R sound for mm-hmm. the letter R, and it was an offensive term. And so she had to literally elbow me and tell me right. how to pronounce it properly. So it didn't happen again. And I was so grateful to have her there. Mm. So that one that one name I was sort of tripping on, she was able to, you know, get me to sort it out. And I did. Because then you can, yeah, the comments that come afterwards was quite funny and painful all at the same time. Yeah. But for me, it's like I needed, I want to know that. I want to know yeah. how to pronounce this person's name because they're family listening. And that, that's all there is to it. It's all about, commentary is about respect. Yeah. And like a lot of people take it for granted, the roles and opportunities they have. They can become egotistical about it. And I would rather they just got into it and enjoyed calling the footy and the people yeah. playing it for what it is. Well, 
the other thing is, Brad, there's not that many people who are good at it. It's a really hard job. Like there's really, you know, you can count on your one hand the people who are actually good at it. So, uh, and you're you're definitely one of those. So anyway, I, unfortunately, I don't have much pull. If I have no pull, to be honest. But uh, if anyone's listening, I reckon Brad Cook should be your your commentator. Look, thanks for sharing that experience, Brad. Uh, yeah, appreciate you you doing that. Now. We are running out of time, unfortunately, but let's let's have a bit of fun to finish off, shall we? Now, I want to tap into your wealth of Koori knockout experience and knowledge. So a few questions about your most memorable moments, if I may. We'll go through one at a time, but the questions will be, what's the greatest knockout team you've ever seen? What's your most memorable knockout match? And what's the best knockout performance by an individual across a whole tournament that you've seen? So we'll go through these one by one. Let's start with what's the greatest knockout team you've ever seen? with a different community but he played with 
Ewan Monaro, one of the South Coast teams, a guy called Aaron Briley. Oh, yeah. And there's a social media clip running around where Ewan Monaro came back against Moree and they were 14 points down with five minutes to go and actually came back and won. Right. And Aaron Briley's performance in that game and that tournament was the best individual footy I'd seen. It was yeah. everything he touched. He was this big, strong centre. He had silky hands, great feet. was big, like no one could tackle him. That performance, yeah, he should have played first grade, but, you know, a few issues stood in his way and yeah. he got a chance to. But oh, there's been some cracking footballers over the years. And, you know, the best knockout player I've ever seen, I want to get in before we finish, mm. is a former first grader called Dennis Moran. Oh, yeah. He's a hooker, played at Parramatta. Of went overseas and played a lot of footy overseas in the UK in the Super League. Yeah. But Dennis Moran is single-handedly the smartest decision-maker in knockout footy I've ever seen. Right, okay. He, he turned games. Him and Dean Witters helped Narwin win that grand final in 2008 against La Perouse. Mm-hmm. Now, tragically, in that, this is the emotion of this event. Mm. Semi-final that morning at Abadar, uh, in Tweet Heads, big front rower called Alf Atkinson had mm. a seizure on the field and was taken away in an ambulance and pronounced dead. Mm. This happened at a knockout. And that afternoon, that team that lost him got permission from elders and family members to continue mm. and came from behind 14 points down to win that knockout for Alf. And it was Dean Moran and, uh, sorry, Dennis Moran and Dean Witters that did it. But Dennis Moran throughout that event and every other game he's ever played, I've never seen him make a bad decision. He's the best. Yeah. Oh, that's an incredible story. They're amazing memories, Brad. Thanks so much for sharing. In- I could talk forever, yeah. unfortunately, about this event. No, I, I love it so much. We'll have to do another and show. It deserves everything it gets. Yeah, yeah. Incidentally, there's a, a great interview that's available at the exhibition with Dean and Jake Witters and, and Dennis Moran about uh, the Narwhal Eels and a couple of their epic knockout final victories. So that's well worth checking out. There's obviously the history repeating vibe. There's some father-son stuff too. So I absolutely love that. All righty, Brad. We are out of time, but I wanted to say a big, big thanks for coming along and, and sharing your love and knowledge of one of uh, this state's great sporting and cultural institutions, the uh, the Koori Knockout. So thank you so much, Brad. Go well, and thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thanks, John. I really appreciate your time and your effort to get behind this event. I encourage everyone to start finding out about the Koori Knockout, get behind it, and support it. it. It really needs your support, and it could grow into something incredibly huge. Thanks so much, Brad. Progressive Rugby League. Brad Cook, ladies and gents. Good guy. Great call of rugby league football. Incidentally, Brad is also behind a, a great app that was developed for the knockout called the KO app, the letters KO, which gives live scores and updates from the knockout and has been getting bigger and bigger since its launch in 2016. I think over 12,000 people used it this year, I believe. A shout out also one more time for the Koori Knockout exhibition at the New South Wales State Library. Well worth checking out. I visited over the weekend and it's great. It's pretty small. At first, I thought I'd be in and out in 10 minutes, but there's actually a lot there. There's some really interesting interviews. Ricky Walford, Dean Witters, some of the founders of The Knockout. Really good stuff. I was still there 45 minutes later, I reckon. Okay, thanks as always, ladies and gents, until we next meet somewhere on a hill in a deck chair, taking in some rugby league carnival action, preferably in knockout form. Rugby league, call me, and see ya.